Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at Amazon, its ring doorbell camera system, and a slew of issues it raises, with two people that have raised concerns that the technology pretends a slippery slope towards even more ubiquitous surveillance and techno-authoritarian outcomes. But even as I'm recording this, new revelations are emerging in various news outlets from what is now known as the Facebook Papers, a trove of thousands of pages of internal company documents obtained by Francis Haugen, the former Facebook product manager who testified to the Senate earlier this month. Revelations from the documents first started to emerge in a series of Wall Street Journal articles, but now 17 American news organizations, including the Journal, the Associated Press, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, NBC, Reuters, and Fox Business Network, are set to publish the results of their analysis of the complete document set. Reading through the coverage this week, which has detailed how the company failed to adequately respond to the harms building up on the platform ahead of January 6th, how it spurred hate and conspiracy theories in India, how criminal activity is permitted to thrive across Facebook. I was struck by one quote from an employee on Facebook's internal message board, Workplace, after the January 6th insurrection that was reported in the Washington Post. Quote, I'm struggling to match my values with my employment here, they said. Quote, I came here hoping to affect change and improve society, but all I've seen is atrophy and abdication of responsibility, unquote. Indeed, one of the many shocking things in these latest disclosures is not simply the details of the harms, many of which were already known and detailed by journalists, activists, and academics around the world, but rather that they suggest the company's executives have been engaged in a vast deception, misleading lawmakers in dozens of countries, investors, business partners, employees, users, and the public. Given this, while Mark Zuckerberg is its CEO, while this management and governance structure is in place, is it ethical to continue to work at Facebook in light of these disclosures? We'll take that question on next week's podcast. Now, back to this week's show. Earlier this month, Evan Selinger, a professor of philosophy at the Rochester Institute of Technology, published a paper with co-author Darren Durant in the journal Science is Culture titled Amazon's Ring, Surveillance is a Slippery Slope. Last month, a must-read profile of Chris Gilliard by Will Ramis for the Washington Post also started out with concerns about Ring. I invited Evan and Chris to join me to discuss their writings on Ring and how it fits into their broader views on tech and society. Chris Gilliard, visiting research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center. I'm Evan Selinger, Professor of Philosophy at Rochester Institute of Technology. Evan, your new paper was the reason for the season for this uh, particular podcast episode, Amazon's Ring, Surveillance as a Slippery Slope Service, uh, with your co-author Darren Durant in Science as Culture. What prompted you to write this paper? It is so good that Chris is on this panel, because Chris, in part, prompted me to write this There have been a number of activists, there have been a number of academics, uh, most especially Chris, who we talk about at the beginning of the paper, but also people like Evan Greer over at Fight for the Future, who have made very strong claims 
particularly about Ring. They've said things like, this technology isn't just a bump and grind technology. It is fundamentally incompatible with things that we care about in society, like democracy and equity. Unfortunately, those kind of comments usually only get a chance to be heard as maybe a quote in a longer reported article or as you know something being inserted in a political campaign. I really wanted to kind of figure out what's the best way to do a longer form defense of what they're saying. What they're saying clearly rang true to me, but I wanted to provide a little bit more argumentative scaffolding. And Chris, you've been prominent public voice offering concerns about Ring for, for a while. What is it about this service that bugs you primarily? Well, there's a variety of things. Uh, I think that the way that they achieve market penetration by making um, backdoor deals with law enforcement, I mean, that's a big part of it. But I also think that it exponentially increases the, the surveillance possibilities and capabilities of law enforcement and also sort of in a weird way deputizes, and we can go into that a little bit more later, but deputizes private citizens into becoming agents of surveillance. And third, I mean, I, I want to be mindful of time because I, I could basically all, t- all day list what's wrong with it or what I find offensive about it. But third, I think it operates, it along with the neighbor's platform, operates as a gentrifying agent that often allows people to broadcast their racialized anxieties about who does and doesn't belong in their neighborhoods. So I want to get into all of those points as we move along here. Um, but Evan, you you start out in this paper by putting this question about Ring in a broader kind of intellectual context around science and society, technology and society. Can you kind of just take us uh, through the the high level on that to the extent that you can? Um, sure. And there's this one character that keeps coming up in the paper, <laughs> Langdon Winner, and this this great title of a paper that I had to go and read. I'm afraid that I haven't. The Whale and the Reactor, a seer, which was from 1986. So tell us a little bit about the, I guess, the conceptual framework you're working within here as you think about Ring. Sure. So I would put it like this. So, you know, science and technology studies is a rather broad interdisciplinary field. People don't always march in lockstep. They have very different ideas. And so Sort of early in the formation of that field, you had this guy Langdon Winner, who was making very important claims that we shouldn't just be looking at technologies in terms of sort of facile cost-benefit analysis, that there can be something deeper, something completely transformative. He referred to them as forms of life, the idea being that once we become so habituated and we take for granted the operation of whether it's devices or infrastructure or systems, they change the flows of the things that matter most. They change how we understand ourselves, how we communicate with others, the the, the very frameworks that we use for understanding things like security and privacy. And so motivated by that, one of the things that's happened in STS that I just am not as sympathetic to is there's so much micro-level sociological analysis. The idea is Let's avoid some of the big picture stuff because the devil is in the details. And while I get that, it sort of leads you to a position where making larger level claims, particularly claims about society moving in a very strong direction, a direction that I don't want to say is full-fledged technological determinism, because that sort of story makes you think there's no levels of intervention, that we're just sort of passively sitting back. But nevertheless, there are strong affordances. There are strong economic incentives 
there are strong trends that in the context of Amazon Ring, I think are fundamentally creating a different form of life. And so we wanted to rehabilitate that kind of Langdon winner insight and furthermore argue, and I guess this is the big picture point here, if you're an individual consumer, you probably have very good reasons or at least reasons that Amazon has given you to believe are good reasons as an individual to maybe buy a ring surveillance doorbell or other related products. Nobody is asked to think about a big picture. Nobody's asked to think about these consumer technologies as literally re-engineering the fabric of society. Nobody's asked to think if everybody acts in their own perceived interest, will the aggregate effects be significantly larger than the sum total of their parts. And that's the picture we wanted to put together by evoking a slippery slope, like a real one, not a hyperbolic one, not something that just seems like a techno panic. We wanted to articulate very specific causal drivers to change the framework of the conversation, to say that if you're just looking at deterring porch pirates, or you're looking at trying to you know, uh, have a little bit more faith that uh, your place won't be burglarized, these are very myopic ways of looking at things. So we wanted to be able to talk about the directions that society seems to be heading in if these technologies become more widely adopted, which seems like, yeah, that, that's what we're heading towards. Chris, you, you put these immediately in the context of the experience in the United States and obviously the deep cleavage we have here around, around race. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't think it can be separated from that. And just to, to build on what Evan said, despite what people think or often how they operate, I mean, we do live in communities and we do live in a society. While it is, you know, there are some individual reasons people might use these devices or, or think about them. As with many technologies, I think it's impossible and I think very destructive to think about them divorced from questions of race and equity and inequality and how those technologies affect the most marginalized. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I think Ring fits right in there or, or needs to when we're, we're talking about how technologies affect particular populations, you know, the disparate impact, if you will. So we don't have anyone from Amazon on the show. And, and certainly if someone from Amazon listens to this and would like to take on this conversation, I'd be glad to have you. Uh, but I did visit Amazon.com and look at a few reviews for the for the ring um, and it kind of very much, I, I think, fits the the pattern. If you look at the 74% five-star reviews for the ring, there are folks who are saying things like, you know, we live in a very rural neighborhood and unfortunately we've been robbed of many things. Gas was stolen. Sometimes someone stole our Christmas laser light show. We knew who it was, but had no proof. Now we can have the proof if anything else goes missing. Someone else points out that they use their ring to monitor uh, quote, my pops front porch, he's 94. So I can see him coming and going from his studio on the opposite side of the house. Perfect. I can check on him coming and going from his walks and even watch him watering his plants. Uh, another reviewer says they absolutely love it. They were having trouble with people trying to enter their home. Their apartment managers wouldn't listen to any of their complaints. Um, I've heard from other people who say, you know, we have a ring because the police don't answer our calls, you know, or the, the, the problem with, with the quote-unquote porch pirate phenomenon is so bad that police don't follow up, that type of thing. It's strange to me that you know, the, the ring and the package delivery are such intimately related uh, phenomena, which is probably not in any way a surprise uh, when you really think about it. But 
you know, I, I don't know. I guess there, there probably is someone who will listen to this podcast and say, you know, I get what you're saying, broader harm to society, but what am I supposed to do here in my situation? Just to say something real quick, and then I'd love to hear what Chris would, you know, respond to that. I, I just have a few, a few thoughts. I think one, the points that you just made, they are legitimate, right? I don't want to say that somebody who has those concerns is acting in bad faith or that they're completely in false consciousness. Like the real problem here is structural, which is, you know, companies, sometimes like governments, never let a good crisis go to waste, particularly a crisis in this case that Amazon helped create by changing the way that we do commerce. And so for real, if you have people who feel that they are vulnerable, who feel that they are, you know, in danger of important things not being there, I don't know, shipments of medicine or whatever, you know, that a that could be taken and there isn't a safety net here, right? They feel like the systems are letting them down. You become thoroughly enculturated to believe you need to take care of this as an individual using whatever viable tools are at your disposal. So Amazon is happy to provide those tools. Amazon is also happy to make you feel that things are more frightening than they are. They're, they're more than happy to contribute to a perception of crime and to not only make you feel like you're doing the right thing for yourself, that by doing this, you're also being a good neighbor because you can also help others in your neighborhood. Once we have ring cameras out, you could be able to maybe share photos of suspicious looking people. So they've created a kind of script and a template that if you're already feeling a bit anxious, this can make you feel not just that you're doing the, the right thing, but that in a world where systems have let you down, if the police aren't helping you and blah, 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 you can now step into the vacuum. So I guess as a first level response, I want to say, I don't want to dismiss that. Like Amazon is broadcasting those messages. They're presenting that as a template, not just for buying the product, but for seeing yourself. It's a script for seeing your own identity, your own virtue and your own relation to the community. And so what we have, and this is, this is not new, what we have is a mismatch between personal incentives and thinking about the collective good. And it feels, I mean, this is kind of, it's kind of like a tragedy of the commons. It feels tragic to have to ask people who believe that, that you should quote, take one for the team. This is why we need broader ways of addressing this. Yeah, I agree with everything Evan said. There's a couple of things I would add. I mean, I, I must say though, that, <laughs> that, um, Amazon reviews in themselves are perhaps not a very trustworthy metric for how whether or not something is a is a good. Um, there have been even some recent discussions about that in court cases and things like that. But uh, that said, let's take them for what at their face value. There's very little, and I find this a lot with a lot of technologies. There's very little independent research that supports the claim that these devices actually do what Amazon would have you believe they do. In fact, I'm only aware of one study, and that study actually suggests that you're more likely to be burglarized if you have an Amazon ring doorbell. So, you know, as Evan said, I mean, Amazon is incentivized, you know, for a lot of reasons to make you feel a certain way and to make the case that these devices will not only alleviate those feelings, but actually solve a problem. I'm not entirely, I mean, I'm not convinced at all that they do that. Uh, and I don't, there's no independent research that says that they do. The other thing is that journalists have talked to law enforcement 
And in some cases, they have actually said a similar thing, that one of the things the devices do is elevate, they force police to respond to things that they may not have responded to in the first, you know, previously. Now, if your package is stolen, then maybe that's a good thing. So what I would say to that is those are, some of these things are structural, that police not responding to people is a structural thing. The doorbell may seem to solve that, but I don't think it gets at the root issue. And also, I don't think that people should sort of take one for the team, but I do think that we, if we are invested in kind of more just or equitable society, that we sometimes need to find different solutions to problems, okay? So, I mean, first of all, I mean, I'll just be blunt about this. Amazon, in my estimation, like Amazon writ large is like detrimental to society. The idea that we should have immediate gratification for all sorts of products has been damaging to the environment, damage to our society. It's tremendously damaging to Amazon workers. It's mainly enriched one person and destroyed the bodies and minds of many, many other people. That said, okay, so people do sometimes need to order from Amazon, but the things that make a neighborhood safer are things like, you know, streetlights and knowing who your neighbors are and like all of a variety of things that don't involve a technology that brings a lot of harms. I don't order often from Amazon, maybe twice a year or something like that. Uh, you know, I'm fortunate and privileged in that way. But if I can't be home, then I ask my neighbor to look out for my package, right? Like that problem solved. Um, and so I think that one of the things that uh, these devices and technologies do is encourage us to think about community as mediated through Amazon when it doesn't need to be that way. And I think, in fact, would function much better if it were, if it were not that way. So let's talk about this idea of the neighbor and how that kind of plays out both in the paper and, and generally, because that, that's kind of the, the, one of the common themes running through here is, is how this is sort of redefining what it means to be a good neighbor, what it means to be a, a, a citizen in relationship to law enforcement, and how I mediate my presence as a neighbor. I think it's really interesting. You know, Chris was talking about uh, certain ways in which he could imagine communities being strengthened through through local ties. I think this is exactly how Amazon gets to take advantage of certain sensibilities, which is, you know, I mean, this is not a, a new phenomenon, but, you know, many people, depending on where they're living, might feel they, they don't know many people, right? We're, we're kind of at this late stage moment of capitalism where you sort of feel like you're on your own and you're working really hard and there just isn't an opportunity to participate much locally and civically, right? So neighbors become strangers. Neighbors become people that you don't know much about and maybe sometimes you're suspicious of. And so taking advantage of that perception, Amazon wants to create a kind of, I don't know, it almost feels like a techno fix hack to solving that deeper structural problem, which is if you can feel like at the same time you're protecting your home, simply by using this plug and play technology, you're also decreasing. If you believe this, and again, Chris is right, there's no evidence for any of this and that doesn't matter. The issue isn't whether there's studies, the issue is what people believe. And we've long equated the idea that surveillance equals protection. And Amazon is happy to make sure that people continue to believe that. In fact, 
they're willing to push that as far as it could go with other Ring products, whether it's the new robot, whether it's the at-home drone. They're able to basically take things that one might have thought there would have been a strong, strong visceral reaction against, like a drone in my home, but they've flipped the script so that you feel surveillance is comfort, surveillance is efficacious, surveillance gets the job done. And so if you're feeling alienated from your neighbors, if you're feeling like you're living in a society that just doesn't give you much opportunity to make that connection, but all you need to do to kick it up a notch is to be able to show that, oh yeah, I can take some images or some videos from, from Ring. Maybe I can put them on the neighbor's app. Maybe I can show them elsewhere. I'm gonna help people, oh, you know, be careful in this neighborhood, we've seen some suspicious people. It gives the veneer of community participation. And I think that feels attractive to people because it feels like you can both take care of yourself and others, and there's no gap between that. You're not choosing between self-interest and altruism. You get them both at the same time. I want to focus a little bit also on the, the relationship between Ring and law enforcement specifically, because uh, you go into some depth in, in the paper on that, even down to, you know, Amazon folks ghostwriting for local law enforcement in some cases. Just take us through that. Take us through the relationship that's evolved between Amazon, Ring, and law enforcement. There's a few ways in which the relationship between a private corporation and the state are not just blurry, but far too intermingled and entangled. So you gave one example, Justin. Uh, Reporters have done a really good job of talking about how Amazon has been able to not just get law enforcement to be excited about Ring, right? Like have product giveaways, which in and of itself is interesting because if you live in a community where the police still seem to carry a certain amount of cachet, then that's a transfer of symbolic authority, right? So if the police give out a ring, it seems as if this is an actual endorsement from agents of the state. But more than that, to sort of simplify how to talk about it, Amazon has been happy to provide sort of talking points. So if you are part of that partnership, you don't have to worry and spend time about how to talk about it. Amazon's already taken care of that for you. So in a weird way, corporations have been able to sort of puppeteer Uh, government speech, which is problematic in and of itself. But there's also structural relations that I think are important to think about also, which is, are there ways in which having a ring could weaken like core constitutional protections, like Fourth Amendment protections? I think the answer is yes, and it's subtle. This is why I wouldn't expect the average person to think about this, because this isn't something that, you know, if you're not in you know, legal or privacy wonk world, this is not the kind of stuff that typically springs to mind. So I think in two ways, one, Amazon is able to use related software for the police to provide requests. So now you're reducing the transaction costs of the police talking to private citizens. Reducing transaction costs doesn't force anybody to do anything. People are free to ignore those requests. Nevertheless, depending on whether you feel like maybe there's going to be retaliation if I don't respond, or I'm not doing my job if I don't respond. They are not legally complying you in those cases. But nevertheless, a variety of considerations, I think, will in the aggregate and over time, increase the likelihood of people voluntarily submitting footage so the police don't even need a warrant. And even if they're not doing this as mediated through digital channels, 
just being able to know which houses have them provides police with a very easy way to go door to door. And again, I know a lot of people just get nervous when they're in the presence of law enforcement, right? I mean, not because they've done anything wrong. It's just nerve wracking. And so if an officer asks you, even if it is your legal right to refuse it in the absence of a warrant, nevertheless, you might not want to get to that stage. You might feel like you are escalating something. And so I think a variety of basically anxiety and fear-based considerations allow this to be a way in which through the back door, private actors are finding way, or in this case, Amazon, a specific private actor, is finding a way to weaken our sort of constitutional protections. And again, it's a subtle point, but the more cameras that we have, the more that becomes weakened. Yeah, what I would add to that, absolutely, and and Evan talks about reducing the transaction costs, and I'll I'll use a a term that is more familiar to kind of tech audiences, is, is friction. And so I don't think you know, I mean, to re- refer to a previous point, I think that we do need to understand the, if we live in a society, we do need to understand the cost of our actions to other people. Okay. I, I try not to be hyperbolic about this, but in the case of black and brown people, if you're calling the police on them, you're often, what, no matter what the infraction is or you think it is, you're often turning it into a life or death event. And so, do I think that you should call the police if you think your package has been stolen? And my answer is no. To reduce the friction of that, right? To, to escalate the ability to do that for, again, for often items that are not, I mean, I don't think items are worth people's lives is how I, I would, would put that. And so I do think reducing the friction, you know, between individuals and law enforcement I mean, we have 911 for a reason. It's for emergencies. And so to sort of have an easy button to involve law enforcement for things that previously would not have involved them, I think is a problem. It's not hyperbolic to say that part of the big, a big reason that Ring exists is because Amazon is now off the hook for package theft. So previously, if, if, you thought your package was stolen, Amazon was on the hook for that. And now society is, and, and I think in some very damaging ways. Chris, if I could just ask you, because we talk about one, we, we talked about an experience that you had in the paper. I think it gets at this very viscerally and vividly, because you're suggesting that the lack or the, a reduction in friction can lead to overreaction and disproportionate response, right? Involving authorities when there are better means of dealing with it. In one of your essays, which we talk about, you get into, I think it was after Halloween, and I guess like local kids, I don't remember if they used toilet paper or eggs your house or a car, but you know, yeah. it was like a harmless prank. And then you were asked whether you wanted to escalate this because of footage. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think yeah. that was like a key thing that we talked about in the paper was, oh, Chris really put his finger on this. Yeah, so absolutely. So it actually wasn't. Halloween, it was just that some kids in the neighborhood, I I assume they were kids. I don't know who did this. Someone in the neighborhood was egging cars. And it was a somewhat regular occurrence. You know, one car got egged one day, and then two days later, another car got egged. And eventually it came to be my turn. However, the bodies involved thought about that. And my car got egged. And the morning after, 
my neighbor came over and said, hey, I have the ring footage if you want me to send that to the police. And, uh, you know, I live in an area that has a large Muslim and Arab population. You know, again, I want to say I don't know who uh, egged my car, but given the area where I live, there's a chance that it was a brown young person. I don't call the police on people for something like that. You know, I had some rags and some white vinegar and I cleaned off my car and that was the end of it. And again, like my, my ethic is different uh, than many people's, but I do think that we should consider again, like what is the harm and what are some, what are potential uh, outcomes from this thing? A car egging or, you know, lots of things again, that previously wouldn't have escalated to the realm of calling the police have now become areas where you call the police. Uh, and I, I don't, I think there are better ways to solve those things. So one of the things actually in that, uh, I think it's the essay you're referring to, uh, Evan, this uh, caught in the spotlight, you talk a- about, you know, the, the idea of, of ring footage's content that people, uh, you know, mix and remix and, and cut and share. Can we talk about that just for a moment? The, the idea of the, the ring footage as, footage that we we then parse and, and put onto social media networks, whether it's neighbor or or or, uh, or or Facebook. And I believe we're now seeing ring footage show up all the time in like local news broadcasts. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think so I have a huge problem with anything that normalizes surveillance. And what I mean by that is if uh, a delivery guy is dancing on someone's stoop or if uh bring footage of trick-or-treaters. I mean, there's, there's all this stuff that I, I think Amazon has had, has done a great job of making it so the idea, so it normalizes the idea of sharing footage. These joyous moments where someone proposes and, you know, to the ring doorbell or the, you know, the weird moments when a father grills the boyfriend before he takes the, da- the daughter out on a date. Uh, like all of those things serve a very similar purpose, which is to normalize surveillance so that it becomes sort of second nature for people to share these things. And you can only share them uh, if you have a surveillance doorbell. And so I do think there's, a, there's been a very conscious way of, of trying to, uh, what's the right way to say it? There's been a very conscious effort on the part of Amazon to normalize this kinds of surveillance so that it becomes not a thing that you do only when there are porch pirates, but the ring doorbell or, you know, surveillance in a larger point is integrated to our lives in such a way that we don't even think about it. To just add one thing, everything Chris said is, is, is spot on. One of the things we talk about in the paper is to try to back that up just one, one level and go, how has Amazon been able to normalize surveillance before they even procured Ring? Because part of their genius, I think they really want to be, you know, a, a surveillance as service company, which means you've got to keep finding ways of making a profit from doing this over time. And so if you just go back to even having online shopping, we could have imagined through different design choices we could have imagined Amazon not being a success at all. We could have imagined people going, oh, I don't want to give any company, a single company, so much information on so many of the things that I purchased. I, I took comfort in the fact that 
you know, maybe my credit card company could piece some of these things together. But basically, you know, I could pay in cash, I could do a number of things. My purchases were spread out among a lot of places. So we could have imagined people being kind of too afraid to use Amazon, but Amazon found a way to not share information that was being used there. So people didn't feel like they were feeding the advertising economy. They didn't feel like Amazon was being creepy when it made recommendations. Like they did such a good job at the user interface where people felt like they're being catered to in a non-threatening way, that this company is just trying to help them get the things they already want, not trying to upsell them or get them to desire more things and to do it a bit more quickly and efficiently. And then once they started introducing other internet of things devices, things like smart speakers, well, like everybody else who's in that market, you, you want to come up with like an anthropomorphically pleasing voice. You want to make people feel like I don't have spyware in my home. I have a smart, subservient, happy to please cyber servant who just wants to make it easier for me to play music or order my products. So at each layer, Amazon has tried to make surveillance feel not just non-threatening, but desirable as something that truly you should want. And if you don't want it, there, there's an overreaction on your part. So by the time we get to Ring, I just see this as like yet another layer deep in that overall methodology. And, and one more thing I would add to that is I think when we talk about Amazon and when we talk about Ring, I think it's really important to look at the ways that everything that Amazon does in the consumer space, you can draw parallels to what they do in their warehouses. And so it's very, I think it's um, incomplete to only look at what they do in consumer space and public space, because I think that to be blunt, what I think they're the long tail of what they're trying to do is to basically transform public space and people's homes into Amazon fulfillment centers. And so they're widely known for the kinds of surveillance and micromanaging that they do of workers in warehouses. But you can look at the products, you know, down to robots that remind you to be more productive. You can look at the products of the warehouses that they're trying to introduce into uh, consumer spaces and into people's homes that do many of the same things. So it's not, it's very, if you want to fully understand what they do, you have to look at the range of places and spaces that they occupy. I'll point out that the, the paper, which everyone should go and read, gets into kind of seven, as I understand it, key points, uh, themes that uh, where ring intersects with society and things we should be concerned about. I know we haven't hit all of them here. So Evan, if there's a couple that you, you feel like you want to tick off before we close, uh, feel free. But I want to kind of finish on the, maybe the bigger picture. You know, the Ring, in some ways, there are parallels to all the things we discussed uh, to the persistent conversation about, about social media, you know, um, and how that's changed the way we interact with one another and the way that our politics work, uh, both at a local and at a global level. For, for the two of you who look at these things so closely, is there cause for optimism at the moment? Is there, are there things that you're kind of keep you moving and doing what you're doing? Chris, I'm going to let you go first so I can think of some optimistic things to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm the eternal pessimist, you know? I mean, I, my brand is, is telling everyone how terrible things are. That said, 
I am encouraged by the pushback uh, that, you know, and an example I use often is, is discussions about facial recognition that, uh, you know, and Evan among, has been among the, the, you know, vanguard on this, right? Talking about facial recognition. And so he can attest that not that long ago, you would be uh, ridiculed is probably not too strong a word to suggest that there should be bans of facial recognition. And now we see that and we see it more and more. And the other parallel I make is to, is to finance, right? Once upon a time, I did not know what a credit default swap was. I did not need to, or I didn't think I needed to. Um, but the crash made it such that I did need to know what that was. And so now people know what algorithms are. And now people have a better understanding of what surveillance is. And now people can see that when platforms talk about how social media is a mirror, that that's misdirection. And if anything, it's a funhouse mirror that amplifies. And so people are a lot more informed about these things. And when they see them, when they see a clearer picture of these technologies for what they are, I think more people reject them. And so that's the, that's the thing that encourages me. So, so to quickly riff off that and, and add one other thing, I think for sure, like, so I teach in a tech school, right? So most people who are going to, to my university are really interested in the range of engineering and science options. This isn't a typical humanities school, even though we offer a lot of you know, liberal arts classes. I've always had really good students. I mean, I've always been thrilled with it, but I would say in recent years, they, they come to the table already more ethically and politically informed, I think, than students of just a few years ago. Like we're able to skip some stuff. Like they don't need to be taught certain basics about equity or at this point, even things like bias, like they already know it. So I'm using them just as a kind of proxy to say, it, it does seem like, you know, conversations take a while, but I am certainly thinking some of the younger generations are picking this stuff up a whole lot quicker, you know, th th than I did, than their peers did. And then I guess if I were really, you know, looking at, okay, is there a double-edged sword here where one of them might be positive? I would say it's this. You know, the pandemic has been such an interesting and fraught period. So on the one hand, I think it certainly further entrenched Amazon's power, right? So as it became harder for many people to get the things that they needed, not just through supply chain disruption, but maybe out of concern about leaving your house, you know, this has been a boon for Amazon, right? On the other hand, we're reading story after story about the great resignation, about people not wanting to go back to jobs that they felt were either exploiting them or not treating them fairly, or even developing a picture of the kind of li feeling life is short and thinking about the kinds of lives they want to lead and being willing to even take a hit on some stuff in order to have a bit more autonomy. So I don't think we know yet where the ultimate cultural conversation about has the pandemic changed our, our sensibilities about things. So I think discussions about fairness and the good life are becoming super resonant right now. And so they might have some downstream impacts on some of the more technological based questions that we're discussing. There's one thing I would add, you know, I think one of the things that these companies have been really effective in, in doing is taking things that some people think they need. So even to go back to what we talked about early on. So if people feel like they need security cameras, I actually understand that. 
But the part of the problem is that companies have been very effective in making us believe that we need a cloud-connected security camera that goes to Amazon and that also um, um, pol where police can request videos. And so that the idea that you need a, a security camera is different from you need a security camera that ingests you into Amazon's ecosystem and that also makes it super easy for you to involve law enforcement. So it's possible to have a security camera that doesn't do those things and also would do a lot of the things that people um, say they really need and feel that they really need. Um, you know, again, like, like an Alexa or like a neighborhood uh, message board, like all of these things, there's ways that they could function and not do the horrible things that they do. But companies have done a very good job of telling us that this is the only way they can function. And so that's the other thing that I would, I would say to people who, who feel that they need these things or who get some kind of benefit from them. It's possible to have these things without the, the, the negatives. Now, it takes a little bit more work, but we can have those things. And, ju and just to tack on that, I think that I think it's such a good point. Remember, Amazon isn't just one company amongst others. You know, they have a massive ability to influence behavior at scale. So we're not just talking about people who happen to buy a product, right? When Amazon goes all in on something, you're going to find if they do a, if if they do their typical Amazon job, it's going to have massive ripple effects. And I think one of the problems then, if we look at say the psychology, psychological insights into normalization. Well, they seem to suggest that something simply becoming more pervasive can influence whether people have a favorable attitude towards it. So since Amazon can influence behavior at scale, one of the things that could be happening here, and again, you don't expect people to think about it because it happens pre-consciously, is the more people see ring going around their neighborhoods, the more it feels normal because it's pervasive. And when people understand something to be normal, they don't just usually understand it to mean, oh, it's something that is commonplace. It's also something that you feel kind of okay about, right? Because if it wasn't something that was okay, it would be perverse to live in a society where that is widespread. So the more that Amazon is able to penetrate the market with its products, I think the harder it becomes, because Chris is talking about, yeah, we could design things differently, but they have such an effective way through their, through their shipping, through their you know, one-click purchase to not only get their products out there, but the more that we see them, it becomes like a vicious feedback. And so I think that even if you had people who were like, let's come up with like a better decentralized it would be harder for that to catch on, which Amazon knows and takes advantage of. Powerful argument for us to take on antitrust discussions in a future podcast. And maybe we'll have the two of you back to do that. So Chris and Evan, thank you so much. Yeah, th thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. I hope you'll send me your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening.
Press。